Welcome to the Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices podcast. We acknowledge traditional owners of the lands on which the podcast is recorded and would like to pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. The Family Voices podcast is a series of conversations with families and professionals. We hope the podcast builds on families' knowledge, skills and confidence when navigating early childhood supports. The podcast is also an opportunity for families to share their individual stories as a family with a child with a disability or developmental delay. This podcast series is brought to you by Early Childhood Intervention Australia, Vic Taz. To learn more about the podcast and our organisation, please visit ekiavic.org.au. Hello, I'm Trish McIver. It's my pleasure to introduce Dee today on Family Voices. Hi Dee. Hi Trish. It's great to have you here today. Dee, can we start by telling us a bit about your family? Yeah, sure. So um, my name's Dee and I'm mum to Emma and Emma is eight years old. Um, I have my husband Tafai and um, Emma is a stroke survivor. So Emma had a stroke in utero and we were able to identify that at around I think I began having concerns when she was about five months old um, and she wasn't reaching for toys with both hands. But I took her to several GPs several times and I was just made to feel like I was a paranoid first-time mum and nothing was wrong because she was quite engaging as a baby to look at and she was very googling and gagging and um, she was just gorgeous. So they didn't really have many concerns just then. So, um, yeah, we uh, eventually went to the maternal child health nurse and I said to her, you know, she's got a hand preference and uh, that was when she was around 10 months old and she rang, I guess, the alarm and uh, referred us straight into a paediatrician and that's where our journey began to diagnosis for Emma. Oh, well, that's really interesting to hear. Our daughter has a hemiplegia too and it sounds really similar to our early days. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge gap in the system that, you know, there is an an awareness. Well, the paediatrician was fantastic. He picked up on it straight away, but it was just the GPs that were really blasé about it, really made me feel like I was paranoid or or something. So, yeah, I'm sorry you had that experience as well. Mm. But it also just highlights how important it is uh, to listen to yourself as a parent. We know our children and it's really up to us to follow through on those concerns as well. Absolutely, yeah. So, um, yeah, we we obviously ever had an MRI um, as ordered by the paediatrician and um, initially the radiologist misdiagnosed her and said um, that she possibly had a brain tumour, but um, the paediatrician questioned the diagnosis because um, he was really advanced in sort of reading imaging and um, he said he would uh, he, he thought it might be a uh, parencephalic cyst as a result of stroke in utero or bleed on the brain. Um, so it was then that, um, yeah, I, I guess everything kicked off after that once we got that scan back and we saw that she had a significant brain injury. We uh, were referred to the Royal Children's Hospital and um, obviously early intervention, uh, the Victorian Paediatric Rehab Service. And um, yeah, Emma's journey began with um, with rehabilitation and, and recovery. And how old was Emma then? So Emma was about, uh, by this stage, she uh, was around 
11 months. So it didn't really take long. What happened was once we saw the paediatrician, um, he immediately gave her a cerebral palsy diagnosis because he wanted her to be eligible for programs and uh, for therapy to start straight away, which was fantastic. Uh, and it was very clear that she had a hemiplegia um, by that stage. She was commando crawling, but she really had no recognition of the right-hand side of her body. And he was just... Um, really proactive in um, getting her the services that she needed straight away. Uh, Then we sort of, I guess it's a whirlwind. That's when the whirlwind starts. So, you know, you you get the diagnosis. Uh, We went to the children's, the neurosurgeon confirmed the stroke. um, And it was really confronting because I I didn't even know children could have a stroke. Um, It's always sort of been marketed as an adult's illness and or an adult event, a health event. So um, for me, it was just a huge shock. And I guess it was just, as you would probably know, you just get thrown into appointments, you know, it's just one appointment after the other and you go from being really postpartum and um, thinking about your baby to just trying to manage all of this intervention that just comes in a big wave, it feels like. Um, And, yeah, I guess for me the first, you know, probably two years after diagnosis was a bit of a blur really because I was so distressed. Um, Not that she was disabled. That didn't bother me at all. I I, um, I had no issue having a child with a disability. It was for me that – the fear of the the unknown and and learning how to parent a child with a disability because there are so many books and there's so many apps and everything for neurotypical children but there's nothing really for us parents whose children are disabled so I guess the whirlwind and the wave um, was just was just trying to learn how I could be the best mum for her at that time yeah oh, absolutely and what supports did you have personally during that time. So I work in, um, I actually professionally work in the family violence space. And, um, you know, for me, a a big component of working in that particular area is around self-care and ensuring that you're debriefing with someone professional. Otherwise, you know, you can't do the job that you do, I don't believe. So um, I engaged with a psychotherapist initially um, just to deal with how I was processing the diagnosis. Um, Also, just to deal with, um, I, I guess, the stress that comes with the, the appointments. And I think for me, the, the biggest support at that time were her allied health team. So I became really, really close with them because they were the ones who were, I guess, carrying me at that time. You know, I, I really feel like they were all holding me up and giving me the tools I needed to be there for Emma. And I think you know, it even makes me emotional to talk about them now. And she still has a couple of her therapists from those early days. So it's really emotional because they really helped me come to terms with my new role in terms of, um, you know, being a speech therapist, a physiotherapist, a OT, you know, you've got to implement all those things at home that they teach you in, in their um, sessions. So, uh, for me, my biggest support was obviously engaging in um, therapy for myself and learning how to manage the stress of all the appointments and and the change in the circumstances of my life. But it was also around um, 
the therapists just uh, being amazing women, like they were all women, um, and they just held me up and made me believe that I could do this. So, um, yeah, I give them a lot of credit because they they really went above and beyond, and they still do with families um, in the VPRS. It was uh, it's a quite a known thing um, now that I've obviously connected with the wider community that the the Victorian Paediatric Rehab Service is known for that. They're known for providing that extra level of support um, for parents. So, yeah, I would say that was pretty crucial at that time. There wasn't any information at that time around stroke in children and um, I guess that was the motivation behind co-founding Little Stroke Warriors, which we'll talk about soon. But I... I couldn't believe that I lived in a first world country and my child was diagnosed with a stroke and I actually couldn't find anything around how to navigate the pathway forward. What is stroke in children? How does this happen? Um, so that sort of well, lit the fire in me to, to change that. So, um, yeah. And I did have a little sneaky read on one of your blogs. Um, you've done amazing work and co-founded Little Stroke Warriors can you tell us a little bit about that advocacy work? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Little Stroke Warriors, uh, I co-founded with another parent of a child that had a stroke and she no longer works in the space, but she co-founded the organisation with me. Um, and we just wanted to connect community together. And so we started an online support page but that didn't seem to be enough because all that we heard were all of these stories around people experiencing these huge gaps in the healthcare system and, you know, children, uh, because we know stroke can happen in utero, but it can also happen in, uh, you know, childhood as well. So there were children every week going to emergency departments in Australia and not being diagnosed quickly and, and receiving the same treatment that an adult would if they had a stroke or if they came in with, with the signs of stroke. And so that injustice to me was it was just really not sitting well. So what we decided to do was partner with the Royal Children's Hospital and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and the Stroke Foundation. Um, and we actually met each other through the Stroke Foundation. We connected um, on their page because I thought of all places in Australia, surely the Stroke Foundation has information. But at that point, they had very little information as well. So we're really lucky that they wanted to engage and um, we, we had a, a project plan, you know, it was sort of like a wish list really around what we wanted to achieve. And by that stage, we sort of had had 400 families that wanted to participate in changing the system and, and they were part of our community. So from that, once we had the Stroke Foundation on board, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, uh, we, we became a bit of a dynamic team. It was quite powerful, really. And so I went and saw my local member of parliament and I and I told her what was happening. I said, there's children going to emergency departments and they're not being diagnosed for days, you know, and, and it's causing extreme brain damage. Um, and so then um, she activated a a proposal for funding. And so the Stroke Foundation worked really hard with the federal government at that time and so did the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and we were uh, given $4 million in funding to um, roll out a national program and it's called the uh, Paediatric Acute Code Stroke Project and it's being led by the Stroke Foundation and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and that will ensure that there is a stroke nurse coordinator in every major children's hospital in Australia. Um, it also 
means that there'll be a code stroke protocol in all of those major children's hospitals so that when children present, they are treated within the, the four-hour critical time frame to stop brain damage. Um, so that's probably been a really big advocacy win in terms of the community and uh, the Stroke Foundation and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. But we also have developed, um, we formally partnered with the Stroke Foundation about a year and a half ago now nearly two years, and our organisation became a sister charity. So it became the first paediatric stroke charity in Australia. And um, since then, we've been funded by the Barr Family Foundation for a childhood stroke project. And as a result of that, we have been able to develop critical resources for families. So we have the All Brains Are Beautiful booklet, which is something that children can take to school after they've had their stroke that talks about inclusion and how to um, engage back into school and how to explain stroke to their friends. Um, and it's also for children like Emma who've had a stroke and, and you know, um, may want to share with their peers. They don't have to around, you know, what works for them and what helps them um, to be at school comfortably. And we've also, uh, prior to the Childhood Stroke Project, sorry, I'm jumping back a bit, but we also developed the Ch uh, Our Family Stroke Journey booklet and that's a booklet that navigates the pathway forward. So when someone gets a diagnosis now, they can look at this booklet and it just tells them exactly what they need to do or guides them to what they need to do to, to help their child recover from stroke. Um, and that was co-designed by lived experience as well. And I think that's what I love about the Stroke Foundation is that they co-design with lived experience really, really well. Um, and that's been a really successful booklet as well. Um, so we have lots of plans for the project. We've now got a um, childhood stroke lived experience advisory group at the Stroke Foundation. I'm the chair of that advisory group, which is a, a huge honour. And um, yeah, we're just trying to amplify the voices of children. And um, our next step is actually getting children involved in that project um, who've had a stroke and getting their voices heard um, as well. So yeah, we've got a bit going on, <laughs> but it's um, it's very, very exciting. And um, yeah, it, it, it's made a difference and that's that's all that matters it certainly has it's made a huge difference you know from what you were saying there were all these gaps and it looks as though little stroke warriors have done an enormous amount of work to start closing those gaps and make such a big difference in the lives of children and families right from the get-go so I take my hat off and congratulate you and the team that you are working with at little stroke warriors Thank you. Dee, can you tell us a little bit more about Emma and how she's going now that she's at school? So Emma's at school now. Um, she's doing uh, she's doing really well. I guess the, there's um, challenges that are faced by most I think school is hard for most children. Um, I don't think school is easy for anyone. But when you add disability into the mix, now Emma's in a mainstream school and um, I made that decision based on the fact that the specialist school environment was just not suitable for her. Um, and I am, you know, she's doing well, but the, the system fails her it's not the teachers they're fantastic um it's just the system and so what we have um is you know um 
in an ideal world, it would be great if we could have smaller class sizes for kids like Em because, you know, the, the overwhelm of the classroom is it's busy, it's loud. Um, you know, we're very lucky that they've made a separate room for her at her school where she can go and retreat to. And um, they, I mean, they've put in so much effort to make her um, feel included. But um, it's just really... Um, I guess it's really confronting to me because I'm I'm still seeing the segregation of people with disability and um, neurotypical people, and I think you know in in a perfect world in my in my world there wouldn't be specialist schools. We would actually be all together, and um, I think for me it's it's really difficult because uh, I want Emma to be around people with disabilities because that's her identity, but I also um, the the gift she's giving the children in mainstream school, um, the way they've normalised disability. Like they just don't even see her as different. They just think she's part of, you know, their, their school. Like they don't even think about it as different. And so it's um, it's really quite um, interesting, the, the challenges we've had. And I guess just trying to undo people's attitudes and beliefs around um, disability and these ingrained things in people's minds around that, you know, uh, disability, people with disabilities shouldn't be seen in the community and, um, you know, that, you know, a big challenge for, for her teachers in particular were that they didn't know how to teach her. They don't know how to teach a child with a disability. And so they were really challenged by that. Um, but, you know, I'm really lucky that we work really closely together um, and Emma is a happy child. She's such a happy child and I guess for them they just don't realise that happiness is really our main goal and functioning, not academic achievement and, you know, all the things and, and you know, to try and pull them out of their teacher brain, um, which is very, very hard when they've used to be doing the same thing their whole career for most of them and, and getting them to think about, you know, her more holistically um, is has been a real challenge, but they are doing it. And I guess I'm just really lucky we work with a team that are so flexible in, and open to learning, um, but that's not every child's experience by any means. Um, and yeah, I, I think Emma just she runs her own race. She is a child that does things in her own space and in her own time. And we're on her ride. And um, that's how it'll be for the rest of her life. Um, we'll be on her journey with her and we'll be going at her pace. And we won't be trying to get her to go any faster than she can. And the other thing too is that, you know, I am very keen for her to just be her fabulous disabled self. I'm not interested in making her neurotypical. I'm not interested in therapies that push her to be neurotypical or display neurotypical behaviours. Um, as long as she's functioning and she's happy and content, that's really the goal for us. And I think that's something for other parents to think about because in the initial phase of diagnosis, you think, oh, I'll, if, she, if I just do the therapy, it'll fix everything. You know, if I just do the therapy, she'll be neurotypical again. If I do everything they tell me to do, um, not realising that actually um, accepting her as as disabled is actually quite, there's quite a lot of freedom in that. There's, there's quite a lot of, um, yeah, I find that quite freeing. I found that quite freeing to be like, actually, no, I'm going to, you know, be, I'm just going to nurture the disabled 
beautiful person she is. I'm not going to try and push her to do things like make eye contact and, you know, um, talk and be and use social scripts and mask all the time. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, you know, the advice I give parents is just to accept your child for exactly how they are, meet them where they're at and, and obviously you want to work towards goals and you want to have goals for them. We all do, but I would be really, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of weight that you can take off your own shoulders by just thinking, you know, this is her life and this is who she is. And being disabled is not a bad thing. It's, it's awesome. And, you know, because of her disability, I've been able to connect with the disability community more widely. I, I connect with adult disabled activists um, and that's been life changing. And I see this whole different group in society that are so resilient and so incredible. And I would never have had exposure to that in this depth in this much depth if Emma hadn't had a stroke. So, yeah, as much as the, the the stroke is, you know, a lot of people think it's very tragic, it's actually been quite a beautiful thing in a lot of ways because, you know, we're exposed to diversity all the time and would I like to break down all the barriers to inaccessibility and um, social exclusion and things? Absolutely, and that's probably my next goal in terms of advocacy, but I think it's um yeah it's it's a wonderful world to be in in Emma's world yeah Dee, you've explained that so beautifully and it almost brought a tear to my eye it, it really resonated so much in my own life too our children are beautiful as they are and I think more of the early intervention and therapy groups that we're involved in they do see the strengths in our children and, and help break down those barriers rather than having that medical model mentality so thank you so much. That was so lovely to hear. Yeah, thank you. Dee, is there any key message that you would like to leave with us today? Yeah, um, I probably already have in a way, but I would really say that, you know, get to know your child for who they really are and meet them where they're at. Ensure that you're using your voice to advocate in their best interests, not yours. And I think too, I would definitely say that don't be afraid to to speak up for your child or um, to call out injustice. And I've found as a parent, it's much, much more effective if you try and work with people rather than against them, particularly schools, government organisations, NDIS. Um, but it's it's really important that you try and work with the system rather than against it. Um, and I think you'll get more out of things if you try and do that. And also definitely engage support, like emotional support. I think that's been the biggest key for me. Everyone says, oh, you know, you cope so well. I don't. I get burnt out. I just had a week off, actually, just because I was so exhausted. Um, I get burnt out. I get advocacy burnout. You know, I, I'm not perfect by any means. But if I didn't have support in place and and I wasn't checking in with myself and becoming more self-aware, then I couldn't be the mum or the advocate that I am. So all I would say this particularly for mothers or primary carers, do things to look after yourself because you are absolutely no good to your child if you're not getting some sort of self-care in every single day um, or, or going to see a therapist or, you know, um, dealing with the load 
yourself um, and doing something that's just for you. So, yeah, that would be my biggest um, message is, you know, listen to your child, meet them where they're at, get to know them and look after yourself in the process. It's um, so, so important. And I think that's a really strong message to leave us with. Nourish yourself, nourish the life that you have. Thank you so much, Dee. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you speak with us. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Dee. It was so inspiring to hear how Dee's own experience forged the need for better resources and improved treatment of paediatric and childhood stroke. Dee is the co-founder of Little Stroke Warriors Australia and a great advocate for her daughter Emma. Advocacy can happen on many levels, from changing systems to helping a teacher understand a child better. It can help others shift their view and as Dee so beautifully mentions, experience the wonderful world of disability. Dee also highlighted that to be the best advocate for your child, you also need to practice self-care and have supports around you. Dee mentioned how supported she felt by Emma's team of professionals who not only built her capacity in supporting Emma, but also by providing emotional support. Families need to feel supported and heard by the team around them and their child. This includes health professionals, therapists and teachers, not to mention family and friends. This is well aligned with the early childhood intervention best practice on teamwork. There are also a number of support groups, like Little Stroke Warriors, that offer resources and provide families with a supportive community. You can find out more about Little Stroke Warriors Australia through the Stroke Foundation. Until next time, thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Early Childhood Intervention Family Voices. Make sure you subscribe to your podcast app and feel free to leave a review to help us gain more understanding of what type of conversations are helpful to you. More information about this podcast can be found on ekiavic.org.au. Until next time, thank you for listening.